0: From everyone here over at the Horsefeed UK podcast, we wanted to take this opportunity to wish you all and your family a very happy and prosperous Christmas and New Year. Hello baby. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for the Horsefeed UK first ever Christmas bonus special episode. In today's show, we're going to announce the winner of our Christmas Cover Star competition. We just want to say a massive thank you to absolutely everybody that entered. We loved looking through all your photos and images. Whilst we have got a winner this time, there are also numerous runners-up. We'll be contacting you guys in the new year as we would like your horses to also feature for the Horse Feed UK podcast. Up next, we're joined with Samantha Osborne, who's guest hosting an amazing interview with Claire Batterby. Stay tuned for that, get cosy with a mince pie and a hot chocolate and listen as they reminisce about showing days gone by. We've also got some brilliant tips from Dan from DP Sports Psychology on how to help you guys battle the winter blues. Hi Claire. Hi Sam. So
1: could you introduce yourself and your background with horses for our listeners please?
2: I certainly can. Um, My name's Claire Batterby. Um, I've been with horses my entire life. Um, My dad was a huntsman. My mum was a farmer's daughter and show jumped before they got married. And then once they got married, my dad went to work at the Dell Hunt Kennels as kennel huntsman. And then we moved sort of down the East Coast and finished in Kent in 1996, I think it was.
1: Awesome. Um, so I know in your childhood, you've you've told me before, you've done quite a lot of travelling as a result of your dad's work. What other places have you lived in? And tell us some of kind of the experiences that you gained on various hunt yards.
2: Uh, yeah, as I say, we started off at the Dale and uh, then moved to the Badsworth. I was there for, I think, five, five or six seasons. I'm not sure, quite sure which. Uh, then moved down to the Enfield Chase where um, Raymond Brooks Ward, the commentator, was master. So lots and lots of adventures there and um, then moved down to Kent and we were down there for five years. And that, um, my dad retired in Kent. Um, I've worked with hunters, show ponies, racehorses, uh, race horses, a horses, um, bit of everything, really.
1: A jack of all trades.
2: Yes, the master
1: non. <laughs> and speaking of Jacks, tell us some more about your dad. Obviously, anybody who met Jack knows how much of an amazing man he was. So funny, and always had sort of loads of jokes and tales to tell. Could you share maybe some of your memorable experiences with your dad? Uh,
2: yeah, he was—he um, was certainly a character. Um, yeah, he—he he worked hard. He played hard. He was the sort of person that knew everybody or knew somebody who knew somebody that he knew it didn't matter where you went he always found somebody to talk to um he did lots and lots of different things um he worked as a well god he's done bus driving lorry driving as I say done some farm work um he was in hunting for a long time that was his passion He absolutely adored it uh, the hounds came first, the horses came second, and his family came third. But we knew that. And it, was, it was what what, what happened. Um, always, I was always brought up to believe that the hounds and the horses came first because they couldn't look after themselves. So it was our job and our responsibility. If you had any animals at all, they came first. Um, it was always, you know, the horses have given you a good day hunting, The hounds have given you a good day hunting. So their needs come first, and then you can have a cup of tea and something to eat after. They were never, ever put away and forgotten about. They were always seen to first. Um, The hounds were always fed and checked over for thorns and things before he came in the house. And the horses were always done um, after hunting. They were given... We used to bring them home. um, If they were dry, they'd be um, rugged up and left to have something to eat. And then we'd go back and like do them over give them a proper good groom check them for thorns and everything afterwards um if they were sweating when they came home they had sweat rugs with the duke rug on upside down um depending on the weather the top door would be closed and they would they had we had everything bedded on straw and they had really deep straw beds so it was nice and warm and and pleasant um They'd have a bucket of water with the chill taken off just so that they weren't drinking ice cold water when they came home. And they'd have a warm feed, um, usually boiled barley with linseed and various whatever else they were having at the time. Um, And he was, yeah, he was a hard taskmaster. He'd check (laughs) everything. Um, He told me that his horses had to look better than everybody else's. So
1: that's how it was done. I was just going to say, obviously one of the things that, I guess you're amazing at hence you being nominated for the uh, groom award at the showing world awards was it last year or the year before now forget yeah was it last year and um turnout is absolutely your thing obviously I've learned so much from you from Mm -hmm. men pulling to platting over the years and I just wondered how turnout was perhaps different when you were on the hunting yard before all of the kind of recent products that are now available on the market were about what did you used to use um, to turn horses out many years ago,
2: um, it was we platted with elastic bands for ease. Um, apart from opening meets, boxing days, hound parades, and joint meets and things, then I'd sew the plats in. Every day it was just elastic band we used to put in the plats, Um they were everything was done. There was no washing at all. It was all grooming, proper grooming, um, or as we used to call it, the horses got done over sounds bad but it wasn't (laughs) um we used to use a body brush and a curry comb and they used to get at least 10-15 minutes each side and and then they were done over with a cloth afterwards a wet uh, like hot cloth sometimes if they needed it um but mostly it was feeding um the the condition came from the inside we never used any products really apart from sort of hoof oil um and goose grease to keep mud fever at bay so yeah we used to put that in the heels um and we would we never really had a lot of problems with mud fever we only had a couple throughout like the whole time right that ended up with mud fever
1: and did you used to ride as well as turn them out then and what sort of did you like about riding um on the hunt field
2: i used to do all the exercising at home um if we got new horses um i used to take them hunting first to see what they thought about it. Obviously they'd been hound exercise beforehand uh, so they could see the hounds and get used to them. And obviously they heard them. If I, I didn't used to hunt very much when I was working with, with the horses because obviously they were needed for the huntsman, the whippering. And I didn't really have my own as such. And I just, I just love hunting. I just love it. There's nothing better. I was I was able to whip in a couple of times to my dad, which was just the best feeling ever. And just being able to watch the hounds work and and like the feeling of a really good horse underneath you when you're crossing the country is just the best feeling ever.
1: Absolutely. And what changes do you think hunting has faced sort of more in more recent decades? And in particular, obviously, with COVID, how do you think the hunt will be affected?
2: I think hunting's going to struggle a lot, um, to keep going. And I've seen a lot of, of hunts amalgamate in, in the, the time that I've been doing it. There's been an awful lot of hunts amalgamated, um, a lot of the, well, several of the houses we lived in, the hunts that we were at are now houses. They've been sold off the hunts have amalgamated and the, the kennels have been sold off and turned into housing or, um, you know, that sort of thing that the hounds aren't there anymore. The countries are shrinking due to more cars on the roads, more people and just general urbanisation. And I think hunting is really going to struggle. Hats off to the people that are doing it now. Um, but I do think that people who hunt are their own worst enemies because they hide behind this sort of, if we don't say anything, people will go away and leave us alone um, mentality. And I think if you believe in something, you need to stand up and fight for it rather than sort of sit back and hope that people go away and leave you alone. A lot of the people that are against hunting are very misinformed. and um, But, you know, I mean, everybody's entitled to their own opinion. If they don't like hunting, they don't like it. I wouldn't ever try and force them to go. That's not what I'm about. But I think you need to find out about something before you make your mind up about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a shame, really. I think it's become almost a bit of a dying tradition gradually over time. And I think a lot of people kind of like to dress up and go on Boxing Day or New Year's Day. But I guess it's the hunt's going to be struggling if less people are paying a membership and going week in, week out. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons where they're going to be hit financially as well, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, the staffing in the kennels has dropped dramatically. There used to be quite a lot of staff in kennels. Now it's right. much more of a, a one-man band situation or relying on families to help out. Um, yeah. And I think it, it, they really need to sort of look at changing things. As much as it's a tradition, they need to look at changing things, making it more people-friendly. And yeah, it's going to have to change if it wants to survive, I think.
1: Yes. And I mean, I guess there's a lot of other ways that the hunt can be supported from obviously attending point to points to hunt balls. A lot of people like to go to those kind of social events as well to raise money, don't they?
2: Oh, without doubt. Yeah. I mean, the 90 percent of the people you'll see at a hunt ball, you'll never, ever see hunting. <laughs> yeah. It's more the, more the social occasion than, than anything. But yeah, I mean, a lot of hunts have a really, really strong supporters club and they do lots of things, lots and lots of different things from race nights to meals to, well, anything really. I mean, we've even had sheep racing at one point.
1: (laughs) Speaking of sheep racing, I always remember a tale that your dad used to tell me about riding camels, I think it was, at Olympia.
2: Yes, yes. Um, (laughs) They used to, a long time ago when Olympia first started, we, we moved to the Enfield Chase in 1979. So it was only a few years after Olympia first started. And they used to have Mary Chipperfield's racing camels. (laughs) uh as a a sort of attraction
1: um who needs a donkey um, derby when you could have a camel derby
2: exactly and they used to have um show jumpers and they used to get the people out of the army to to ride them and they they used to have them on every every performance they'd have camel racing and they'd have different teams you know the inventors whatever dressage riders and they decided it would be a good idea to have a hunt servants team (laughs) so it was dad's job to to you know sort of allocate people to come and ride the camels. so yeah it was it was quite good there was um much hilarity Ted Edgar was involved with it Nick Skelton in his in his youth um Derek Ricketts I believe was used to be involved with it and th- they all did it was absolutely fantastic there was a lot of buckets of water thrown around lots and lots of brooms to assist you onto the camel. <laughs> um, I can remember one laid down one year and his dad ran like hell and planned on it before anybody else could, so that he didn't get bucketed with a yard broom or a bucket of water.
1: <laughs> Bless him. And he always spoke fondly of kind of going to Ireland as well and hunting an island. Um, can you remember any of his tales?
2: Oh, he loved Ireland. It was his second home, I think. If he'd have gone over there when he was younger, he would have stayed and not come back. We have friends over in Ireland. A man who used to whip into him, Malcolm Orton, he moved out there with his wife in, I believe it was sort of 2000, something like that. I don't know. But anyway, he moved over there. um, And I went and helped them move. And dad went over, he used to go and house it for them when they went away and things. Um, And he went over and took himself off to the Westmeath hunt kennels to introduce himself, as he did whenever he went anywhere, and um, became great, great friends with James Lowry, who was the huntsman at the Westmeath at the time. And, yeah, he loved it. He absolutely adored it. He used to go out there every winter and go hunting. Um, One morning, somebody had... um, a to ride one of the horses from the kennels and didn't turn up so they'd taken the horse to the meet and there was nobody there to ride it. So dad ended up riding it. At, I think he was about 68 at the time, 69, something like that.
1: Goodness. Um,
2: hadn't ridden a horse for a long time. Um, then they had a birthday party for him when he was 70, when he was out there. He uh, he came home with all kinds of things. We've got a picture of the Westmeath <laughs> Fox downs on the wall at the minute. Um, but yeah he absolutely adored it out there he said it was a different world it was like going back about 30 years how hunting used to be
1: yeah I can certainly vouch for it topping up your bottle levels when I hunted with the meath and the Ward Union, jumping mm-hmm. those double banks as they call them no nope. yes. <laughs> I'd prefer a good hedge to a ditch any day <laughs> yeah they're,
2: they have um, they're absolutely fearless out there absolutely fearless and if you get a good Irish horse you've got Uh, well you've got a fantastic horse
1: absolutely so obviously you've grown up with hunting how did you make the transition then to get so heavily involved in showing obviously you've bred show ponies one of which is currently jumping some serious track show jumping um he is also called jack what you know how appropriately named and um you know tell us how you sort of got into showing
2: yeah uh i went to the horse of the year show it's as simple as that really um we went in, I think it was seven, seventy-seven, seventy-eight, something like that. We we went down to, to the Horse of the Year show uh, just as to spectators just to watch. Anyway, when we went to the Enfield Chase, as I said, Raymond Brooks Ward was the master and he ran the Horse of the Year show, Olympia, and the Royal International at the time. And, of course, we got tickets. Um, we paraded hands there several times and he used to just give us weekly passes for all the shows and just say, go and enjoy yourself. He was a fantastic man. Absolutely fantastic. So lucky. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, and I was watching the Show Pony Championship, the year that Twiland's Carillon won it. And I saw it coming down the centre line with the lights on it and trotting, pinging. And I was like, I want one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really want one of those. Um, and Dad happened to say, I know a man who breeds those in Yorkshire. Uh, and it turned out to be Derek Champion, who, Not a of, course, yeah. <laughs> of course, had all the short ponies. ponies. And he had yeah. Roundhill Queen and Amazing Grace, who was show pony champion at Hoys. And he phoned him up and said, have you got a pony that the girl can mess about with for a bit? Hmm. And he said, yes, of course I have. And um, Dad came up from Hertfordshire to Yorkshire with a car and trailer to pick up a two-year-old for me to Aww. play with. And came back with two. Um, How'd you do? Buy one, get one free. Yeah, came back with a four year old um, who turned out to be Ainthorpe Copper Beach, who was my foundation broodmare. Um, We put her in fall, and then the following year, we got her mother, who was um, Silver Sixpence of Ainthorpe, that Derek had got in a car deal somebody had bought a car off him and not been able to pay for it so they'd given <laughs> him the funding <pony>. um, <laughs> and uh, Patsy came to live with us and that's how the story again uh, begins really we sort of decided that we'd put them in fall and happened to live across the valley from Rowan Renox of the Rendine Stud, just right place right time who have been yeah. fantastic friends throughout the years um, and I went to work for them And they taught me an awful, awful lot. In fact, everything wrote everything about turnout. She was an amazing. Well, she's an amazing lady. Everything has to be spot on.
1: So, what were your top tips then for showing turnout that you would share? That you would say you've maybe learnt from um, the yards that you've worked at over the years?
2: There are no shortcuts. Uh, Shortcuts will show up. Um, Washing is never a good thing, even though I know it's much easier you get a much better coat with grooming. Uh, Little things do matter. Make sure that you sort of take the whiskers off, do all the trimming the day before if you can, or at the very most two days before, so you don't get the regrowth. Uh, And stand back and look. Yes. Look objectively, because you sort of get carried away with things, I think, and people fixate on small things that don't really matter. You know, it's sort of make sure that your tack fits properly. Um, there's nothing looks worse than a brow band that's too big or one that's pinching or a nose band that's not fitted properly. Um, the saddle in the wrong place is a pet hate. Um, and just make sure that you put the work in.
1: Really. Absolutely. It, it does require such a lot of work. Um, so coming back to your you, you talked about how you've kind of bred ponies and I know obviously I got to meet Clover um and what was your other pony called Noddy, Noddy. is that right yeah, yeah that Noddy was yes Noddy. So, so I'd met those two um and then am I right in thinking your prefix was bylands that you yeah. got in the end yeah that, so yeah, talk us through that a little bit more then
2: um, yeah, we, we just sort of started breeding ponies and it was a bit sort of hit and miss to start with. Um, did a lot of re- reading, a lot of research, asked a lot of questions. Um, the first one I ever bred was by a pony called uh, Criffle Califf, belonged to Mrs. Greenleaf. And um, yeah, she was born on my 21st birthday or just before my 21st birthday. And she was born six weeks early and we ended up feeding her on a bottle. Um, Oh yeah, it was it was a bit, mm. and she turned out to be strawberry roan. Strangely enough, her mother was a pink pony, a pink pony. Yeah, um, and her her dad was liver chestnut. So yeah, so we got a strawberry roan. Uh, She went off to Wales eventually, um, and yeah, we just bred um had quite a lot by Rosevine Sea Pigeon. Um, we had some by uh, Soft and Romany Law. Had one by him. Um, had. Who else did we use? I can't remember At the top of my head. It's a long time ago. Um, but yeah, we bred quite a few. Um, but only what we could afford to to have and run on. You know, it wasn't the case of the most brood mares I had was two. Um, the most folds we ever had was two. Because we couldn't rely on them, you know, sort of being sold as youngsters or folds or whatever. And I was very picky where they went anyway. So, um, yeah <laughs> we you know it was always told don't breed them if you can't feed them so we Absolutely. always had the vision for you know we didn't breed them every year it was sort of have a fall miss a year have a fall miss a year um but yeah and you've was- got a
1: beautiful photo haven't you um I think it was at Ponies UK and you'd won a championship there when Ponies UK was kind of in its heyday what class was that and I remember you, you beating quite a lot of producers professionals that year didn't you
2: that Was the most amazing year. It was the foot and mouth year, it was um 2001, if I remember rightly. Yeah, that's Yeah, Yeah. Uh, and yeah, we went to Royal Lanx because that was one of the shows that did run and qualified Clover, violin, song of the sea for the um championships at Ponies UK. And she went, we went there and she won absolutely everything. She won the Rotherwood Broodmare Championship, she won the home produced championship, she um, won the home produced class. Um, absolutely amazing. The stuff that dreams are made of. Yeah. She won the fifteen-two 2 section of the Rotherwood and then stood champion. And we beat um, Jerome because I was sort of ecstatic at the thought of <laughs> being reserved to Jerome Harforth. And we got champion and my dad got very, very drunk that night, along with several <laughs> other people. And, yeah, it was just the stuff that dreams are made of. It really
1: And I know Clover stayed with you, didn't she, right? till yeah. sort of, was she late 20s, was she?
2: She was 26 when she, we had to put her down, yeah.
1: 26. And the both ponies, both her and Noddy, looked so well throughout, didn't they, really, right till the end? Well, um Just obviously a credit to how well you'd looked after them over the years.
2: Well, you know, you have a responsibility if you, you know, if you have them, Um, you can't just decide once they get to sort of 18, 19, you don't want them anymore. So obviously I kept them forever. Noddy was 32 when she went. um, Mm -hmm. And as I say, Clover was 26, but they let me know when they were ready to go. You know, it it wasn't the case of, you know, we're going to keep them forever, no matter what they let you know and I think you, you just have to be responsible for them and they got the best that I could afford to give them. And if Absolutely. I had to do myself, then that's how it was.
1: And so obviously one of the ponies which I believe you bred was that Rosie, who was at Emerson's, Emerson's produced her for the Heaton's. And I remember Joanna, I think, riding her. Yeah. Um, and so was she one of Clover's falls then or was she one of Noddy's?
2: She was Noddy's foal. She was Clover's sister. And she was born on April Fool's Day in 1993. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I remember some of the things. Um, Yeah, she was very, very special. Um, She was beautiful
1: black pony, wasn't she? And just a perfect show pony. Yeah, she was absolutely gorgeous. And sort of, what were some of her top results then?
2: Uh, She was supreme champion at I think it was Staffs County. Um, She qualified for Hoy's every year that um peter and claire had her she um she qualified the first year with ashley thompson and then carol bought her for joanna and she stayed with them for the rest of her life apart from when i was lucky enough to get her back to be a broodmare uh but rosie she just she was just so consistent she went out i mean she didn't set the world on fire she wasn't you know supreme champion at hoys or anything like that i think her top result was third at hoys which was a huge achievement amazing for for a small breeder um but yes she was just so consistent she was she was sort of there or thereabouts she was always in the top sort of four or five um more often than not she was in the top three and she was just wonderful she was lovely she was the easiest pony to do everything with she was fabulous
1: Oh. And how do you think showing has changed? I mean, obviously we've we've sort of talked about some of the changes in hunting. How do you think showing is different today compared to how it was when you used to show and breed then?
2: Showing was a lot more sociable when I first started. Obviously we had Ponies of Britain, which then changed to Ponies UK. Um Ponies of Britain was a three day show and we used to go for the whole three days. Um but you know, obviously go the day before it started, stable camp out um have parties barbecues everything you know everybody used to sort of join in with everybody else and and then Ponies UK came along and it just sort of escalated it, it was called the equestrian holiday of the year and it was absolutely right it was brilliant it you know it was very um once you got the showing finished you'd be sort of around everybody's having a drink and a chat and something to eat and you know everybody would just get gather together um, I have noticed a big decline in the breeding side of, of showing. The the rings Absolutely. are empty to what they used to be. There used to be two lines at, at Ponies UK in the main ring. Um, there'd be two lines of, of youngsters for the championships and, you know, there's big major championships for everything. And, do you
1: think that's down to sort of affording it because it's just everything with horses is just so expensive to do now?
2: I, I think it is, yes, and I think um a lot of people want instant results as well they don't want to wait they want the, you know that I mean people used to be able to just have a a mare and a foal and sort of run them on but they can't do it now and people just want the instant results they want to buy a pony and go to hoys and or buy a horse and go to hoys they don't want to wait you know there's sort of all these four and five-year-olds qualifying and winning they don't give them time to grow up I mean I can understand it because it's not a cheap spot to be in but they mm. need a bit of time you know you're sort I of know, not by the time they're eight
1: or nine I think you're right and I think it's becoming increasingly more difficult probably for show pony breeders to continue when kids are kind of bigger than they've ever been and they're getting pushed onto horses a lot quicker obviously we've got the intermediate classes and kids are always just desperate to be older and doing more aren't they and you know to I was always envious when I was younger because I was probably too tall and I had a 14 hand highland pony at 9 year old whereas my friends in my same class would you know be in first ridden 12 twos I couldn't really do any of that I was too tall so I do think with with children kind of growing bigger and things that we we do push people through classes probably a lot quicker and as a result you know is the, is the show pony now maybe a bit of a dying breed
2: Um, I hope not I really hope not because they are truly beautiful and truly versatile yeah. they can do anything they can do any job they can be mounted games ponies they can be show jumpers um they go hunting they'll do anything people think they're just pretty and they'll trot round a ring mm. they're not they can't they are versatile yeah. and they can do anything um but yeah i think you're absolutely right people are push 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 all the time you know sort of everything's in such a rush these days people don't take a breath anymore
1: yeah it's the world we live in isn't it like you say everything's very very much at the touch of a button you know you just type something into google and it gives you the answers these days whereas i guess people are not having to work for things in quite the same way and you, you see horses you know in the racing industry being rushed in the same way people don't have time they want results and and there's just mass breeding i guess of thoroughbreds and everybody's just wanting those instant results straight away and not leaving horses the time to mature perhaps
2: I think you're right yeah absolutely it it just everything seems to be so frantic which was what was quite nice about lockdown everybody sort of stopped and and took a breath
1: absolutely um, and lovely it,
2: yeah it's been a very strange year with no shows to go to and no you know sort of just the the what they've been able to arrange and, and organise
1: um, but it yeah, has, and worrying. I mean, we've we've got shows cancelled already for next year. I saw Norfolk had cancelled already today, and badminton obviously announced was it yesterday. They are now behind closed doors for next year. So, I guess it is worrying for the future of what we'll actually be able to run, especially when you think of sort of shows like Horse of the Earth show and Olympia and Liverpool that are relying on pulling in those big crowds, big sponsors, you know, the shopping areas, how can a show like that potentially run behind closed doors? And I guess I'd spoken to a friend recently who said that the whole reason she likes showing is to kind of be in the big ring with the crowd and the atmosphere and as much as it's convenient and lovely to go to the likes of Arena UK if there isn't a crowd there's only so many times you can ride your same horse in the same class around the same arena with with no atmosphere and that's still fun when it's costing hundreds of pounds per show to do one class, you know, are people going to want to do that? And I guess we've seen a lot of people move into different disciplines this year, just, I guess, accessing what they can, whether it be, you know, you kind of working hunter riders of, Gone and done bits of eventing and show jumping and done a fantastic job at that. Or people have moved into kind of doing bits of dressage for the first time, I've noticed. And I guess the virtual showing really took off. I don't know if that'll kind of fizzle out over time if people get bored of just submitting photos and winning rosettes and having them come through the post. I think it was probably quite nice at first. And especially, obviously, virtual Royal Windsor was pretty exciting, I guess, for somebody like myself who Absolutely. normally wouldn't be able to compete there because I'd be at work. So I think, you know, it's it's opened up new doors to some people and, and like you say, people have had a break or they've gone off and been able to do training and lessons or just enjoy hacking their horses out again. But I guess it is worrying in terms of the longevity of what's going to happen with the showing industry because they do need those big crowds in really.
2: Yeah, there's there's no fun showing if you don't have the atmosphere there. It's, it's 90% of it is, you know, you get the the atmosphere and the anticipation of the crowd and and just the whole occasion it's it's what Hoys is all about um as you Absolutely. know you know it's it's the getting there it's it's not it's just a show in a car park in Birmingham at the end of the day but when you have all those people and all those crowds and and it does feel special and it is amazing it to get there you know and you're sort of going down in the middle of the night to to exercise and it does you know it feels special and exciting whereas if you're going with no crowds no shops no anything you could be anywhere in the country just riding around an indoor school so
1: that's it,
2: it. you need that that specialness if that's a word
1: <laughs> and talking of specialness can you sort of think of any more memorable showing experiences that you have had beyond kind of what we've listed with sort of like ponies uk and things what what other memorable experiences have you had over the years
2: oh um qualifying um with and Dance of the Eagles for the Lloyds well I think it was the Cuddy at the time I don't think it was the Lloyds I think it was the Cuddy um when I was working at Rendine, um and I got to lead her fall in the main arena at at Hoys when it was still down at Wembley that was so exciting that was yeah the most incredible experience ever um yeah, just I've just been really, really lucky to travel to most of the major shows in the UK, um and Wales and Scotland and you know, sort of everywhere. I've been I've never I've never made it to Dublin with a horse, but I have been and watched and it is a fantastic show. Um and I've just been really, really lucky um watching the ponies that I've got ready doing really, really well. Um Tori Heaton and her little little pony. Um is it Rosevale Tom Thumb, Tommy? He won the yeah. um, Box all Challenge at BSPS and that was so, so special. So special. She just, every time she came out of the ring, she got faster and faster and faster. <laughs> and it was just amazing. Um, they'd, it was made more special, I think, because um, we used to do a bit of um, transporting for Emerson's as well. Sort of when when I was working there, we'd take the the sort of feed and stuff so that they could, Fill the horse boxes with ponies, um so we used to take our lorry and put things in occasionally take a couple of ponies about um and that week, that particular week at b s p s it absolutely poured, and Tori was on Tommy, and it was like sort of the first big show she'd gone to with him, and she'd had a few rosettes, but nothing major and they'd sent her off to wherever she had to go for this Vauxhall challenge first round thing. the the 13 was a 13 hand show hunter yeah it was wasn't it um so and uh yeah they'd sent her off with my dad to groom for her and it was sort of like off you go away the way they went they didn't expect them to do anything at all and they just stormed through the lot and it was amazing and we all cried and carol was beside herself and yeah. My dad just stood there and kept saying, she's going to win this. She's going to win this. And she kept winning and she kept winning. And then she eventually won the championship and it was just awesome. Absolutely amazing. And I remember
1: the photo. They always had it in the living of the horse box, didn't they? Yeah. Beautiful girl, pony.
2: Yeah. It was their Christmas card that year. <laughs> it was amazing. Yes.
1: <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> Rightly so. And obviously that's where we met, wasn't it? At Emerson's. It and you were a great help to me there when I first started out in the intermediate classes and I did suffer with my nerves even then, I guess. And you were always there to kind of reassure me and put me straight. <laughs>
2: well, at the end of the day, you just it's just riding. And once you get in the ring, there's nothing that anybody can do to help you. You're on your own. So it's no good listening to advice from the side of the ring. Do your own
1: thing. Absolutely. And what advice would you give to somebody with your wealth of knowledge, I guess, that you've got from various yards over the year, of somebody new coming into showing? enjoy it enjoy it I know it's, it's easier easier said than done I guess isn't it yeah. you can get so caught up in the hype and the pressure of things and yeah I, I guess again when you're financing it and you, you're kind of working so hard in between a full-time job it can be difficult to yeah. remember to enjoy it but yes it absolutely it should be enjoyable really
2: yeah and just know at the end of the day that you're taking the best one home if, if you can always look at your horse <laughs> and say yeah I'm happy with the one I'm taking home then you've done a good job Go to a show and expect nothing. Then whatever you get is a big surprise. But just do the best you can. It's not elitist. It's not you know. Yes, there are people who do the job with lots of money, and but you can have all the money in the world if you can't. If your kid can't ride the pony and the pony doesn't go well, you're not going to get the placings. So you know, put the work in and just enjoy
1: absolutely and although there is sometimes talk about kind of an amateur and professional divide i think everybody has their own battles don't they whether it be you know your amateur struggles because they're doing the horses before and after the full time job and obviously there's limited money and and things whereas i guess you know i wouldn't like to have been a professional this year with covid because i guess that's their their livelihood it was a huge shock to the system and it came from nowhere, didn't it um and and who knows what they're thinking in terms of next year and what they're going to do if showing ever did fold so you know as much as there is that divide there we I think we do have to respect and remember that producers and professionals are professional for a reason and they have you know so much experience that uh, of course they're going to be winning if they've got clients who can afford the best ponies in the same way that we wouldn't expect an average person off the street to just walk into any other sport and be the best at it without having these elite sponsors and training and, you know, throwing themselves at it full time in the same way. So I think the amateur is definitely giving them a run for the money these days. And the amateur is becoming stronger and stronger all the time, aren't they? But, um, I, I, you know, I, I think we've got to probably unite as a showing community if it is going to survive, I guess, because, i guess everybody pays the same entry fee at the end of the day don't they and we all need a fair shot and we all need to enjoy it really i guess like you say
2: yeah exactly that's you know i mean you've got to remember like you say the professionals are professionals for a reason um they're the best at what they do and if you're doing a job 24 7 it's easier to do it than if you have to go off and earn a living doing something else then do your horses um when you come home or work and and things and like you say if somebody can put money into it, then obviously they're going to have the better ponies um, because they can afford to buy them. But that being said, the amateurs are strong and they Mm. are getting better. They are going to more clinics. There's much more clinics available now. There was no clinics or anything available. You found an instructor and stuck with them. Um, And, you know, there's much more opportunities for for amateurs to get on and, and give them a run for the money.
1: Um, absolutely I mean we've got all the choice with sort of amateur classes and you know you've got sort of search for a star and things as the hoys route and I guess at Olympia the the veteran classes they're kind of aimed at your home produced amateurs so I guess there's there's various platforms arguably to the point where have we now got too much choice that the class members fall because we're sort of spreading ourselves a little bit thin but you know that's probably another debate altogether isn't it
2: yeah definitely there are much much more um classes to go at now than they absolutely it used to be you know i mean we, we didn't have all the intermediates we didn't have the um like the coloured coloured classes, in. yeah. I mean, they and they the
1: choice of coloured classes is crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole day practically at Royal International is just set aside for coloured, isn't it? Whereas I guess there would have been seen as second class citizens once upon a time ago, especially again, linking back to hunting on the hunt field. Yeah. Whereas now, you know, cobs and coloureds are all the rage.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, good cobs have always had a place they were always the ones that you use for cub hunting and, and that sort of thing. Most of the hunt yards had a few cobs about to do the cubbing mm. and then you, your proper hunters, if you like, had, had come in sort of after the opening meet, but I mean, you get a good cob and it'll hunt all day. Um, you never, ever saw coloured on the hunting field. They were disregarded as gypsy ponies, if you're pardon the expression. Um, and coloured <laughs> just really didn't, there was a bit of snobbery there, you know, it sort of, oh God. Mm. But if you... Get a good good horse. It doesn't matter what colour
0: is. It
1: doesn't, absolutely.
0: A big thank you to Samantha Osborne there, another amazing interview for the Horse Feed UK. As always, we love to hear what you guys have been up to, and if you've got any suggestions or anybody that you would like to feature on the show, please do let us know. Up next, we're back with some tips on how to help you beat the winter blues with Dan from DP Sports Psychology.
3: Enjoying the Christmas festivities. Tis the season to be jolly and also that of giving and kindness. Therefore, today, I'm going to give you a free psychology and stress coping technique as a Christmas gift from DP Sports Performance Psychology. Riding can be a stressful time, from recreational riding, out hacking and a driver speds past you, darn close at that, we've all been there to competing at the regional and national finals in front of a spectacle, or spectators. But in both instances, what is it that we do? (laughs) No, it's not reach for that glass of gin and lemonade or a hidden hip flask you've got somewhere in your saddle. But rather we tense up, our breathing becomes shallower. Our mind goes ten to the dozen. We begin to rush around. We feel overwhelmed, and we definitely begin to not think clearly. This is also known as paralysis by analysis, where we begin to choke under pressure and any decisions are either made in the immediate or potentially irrational safest route out of that situation, such as getting off or pulling out of the class. The reason for that is the amygdala. This is a tiny part of our brain that is no bigger than your little fingernail. I bet you're looking at that right now. The amygdala is the fight-or-flight response. Professor Steve Peter calls it the chimp, as it is past the brain, the limbic system, that shares a 98% match and make-up as a chimp's brain, ours just developed further through evolution. This is the tiny voice saying to you, go back to the lorry, go home, it's not safe here, let's get you a nice copper away from here. And then you will feel your heart race, It's up to you then to process this information and then decide on how to act on it. The chimp is 10 times faster and will always beat us to every situation. It's actually, over human evolution, made such strong pathways in our brain that it will even try to dictate our behaviour. When we let it take over, we can start to see how much control it has. A perfect example of this is when someone's had a bit too much to drink and then they begin to say and do things they normally wouldn't do. Visit every town centre on a Saturday night, and you'll see this in motion. These are the basic foundations of our primordial brain. You can find out more about this in the Chimp Paradox book, or audiobook, or I'd be happy to chat about this in future episodes. Just let us know at the Horsefeed UK. Back to riding. When we get like this, it can be really tough to snap out of it. However, there are a few tips and techniques that we can use to stop this happening. Today, I'll be sharing with you colourful breathing. This is a great technique that is really simple and quick and easy to use. You can do this either eyes open or eyes closed, depending on the situation that you're in, and it can be done anywhere. So the first thing to do is to think of your two favourite colours. My favourite colours are red and blue. So, begin with normal breathing, if you can. And focus on the breaths from behind your belly button. Draw air in through your nose for four seconds. And as you do this, think of one of the colours in the air. So, for example, the air is green. And then hold your breath for two seconds. Then, breathe out through your mouth for the count of six seconds. And as you do, think of the air in your second colour. For example, the air is blue. Do this at least twice. This will help your mind quieten down and also help your body relax too. The great thing about this is that it strengthens the neurological pathways in the brain to help your body and mind calm quicker the more you do this over time. I hope this really helps you guys, because I know it can be a bit of a stressful situation, but this is a great little technique that we can use to calm our bodies down. Next time, I'll be chatting about how we can further combat the chimp using keywords and the swish method. You can find more hints and tips at dpsportsperformancepsychology.com in the blog section, and DP Sports Performance Psychology on Facebook. Did you know that I have a free workbook for mental wellbeing over the winter that you can find Colourful Breathing in? I also have a group on Facebook called the 7 Day Mental Fitness and Wellbeing Challenge with all the hints and tips there free for you to use too. Thanks, guys. I'm Dan from DP Sports Performance Psychology. I hope you have a lovely Christmas and a happy new year. See you in the next one.
0: A big thank you to Dan. We really appreciate him coming on and sharing all these health and well-being tips with us. If you're interested in checking out more, don't forget to head over to his website, DP Sports Psychology also he is running a free seven-day wellness challenge at the moment on facebook so again get over there guys like and subscribe and join in it'd be great to see you in the group so on from that and without further ado the whole reason for today's special bonus episode is to announce the winner of our christmas cover star competition for 2020. now we just wanted to say we had some absolutely amazing entries and we're gutted that we cannot pick you all Some of you that have come through we feel will be perfect for different campaigns that we've got like Easter or Halloween and so forth, so we will definitely be contacting some of you afterwards to see about using your images and making your horse a future face for the Horse Feed UK podcast. We will of course be sending out runners-up prizes and the Christmas box of £100 and the canvas copy of your image will also be sent to the winner in January. So without further ado... The winner of the Horse VGK Christmas Cover Star Competition 2020 is Emily McDolly. Emily, thank you so much for your submission. We absolutely loved your pony, Floyd. He's absolutely adorable. Thank you very much for joining in and congratulations on being a well-deserved winner. To everybody else, guys, thank you so much for joining. As we've said, we will be sending out runners-up prizes in the post, so be on the watch out for them. Of course... Hashtag the Horse BGK. Let us know when your rosettes and prizes arrive. For now, that's all from us for this side of Christmas. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening for all of this year and thank you to everybody that's entered the competition and engaged with us online. We really appreciate it. We're going to be back in the new year with episode 20 we're really excited for that and for the things that we're going to be bringing you in the new year as always like and subscribe follow us on instagram and facebook to keep up to date and tell all your friends don't forget the horse feed uk is always free to listen and we're always looking for people to get involved until next time guys i hope you have a lovely christmas and new year and we will speak to you on the other side A big thank you to Samantha Osborne for entering our Cover Star competition. As you will see, her horse Steelo Blue Native is now the Cover Star of the Horsefeed UK. You can enter our Christmas Cover Star competition over at the website. There's some great prizes to be won, so don't forget to check that out at thehorsefeeduk.co.uk.